0: This week, we're joined by Eddie Wang, an author, chef, restaurateur, food personality, and producer. And he's actually also an attorney, so very multi-talented guy. I actually finished reading his memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, earlier in 2020, and I love the book. So very excited to talk all things Taiwanese cooking and food. Talking about
1: food, which is one of our favourite conversation topics, um, Eddie actually co-owned the acclaimed Bauhaus restaurant in New York City, which sadly closed down during the pandemic after 10 years of bringing amazing food to lower Manhattan. This year also marks Eddie's directorial debut of his first feature-length film, Boogie, which is set to be released later this month. So
0: let's get into the interview. Before we begin, we'd like to give a warning that in this episode there is some talk of domestic abuse. If you do not feel comfortable hearing these kinds of details, please give this episode a miss this week. We've included some relevant and useful websites and hotlines in our show notes.
2: I'm great. I'm great. I just did a little physical therapy, so I feel good.
0: I've just drunk a coffee, so I feel good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And I've had a
1: wine, so I'm. <laughs> oh,
2: even you might be feeling better than all of us.
1: In
0: your kind of in your own words, could you just chat to our listeners a bit more about who you are, what you do?
2: Cool. Well, my name's Eddie Wong, and uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, I think people describe me as a chef, uh, a writer, a director. Um, I'm most proud of my underwear campaign with Meundies and uh, that I'm a 1-0 amateur boxer in the state of New York. <laughs> Those are the things I'm most proud of. Also, my rec league basketball team is the reigning champions of the SGV, Mifufu's Basketball League. So these these are the things I'm most proud of.
1: As you are a chef, and food is clearly very important to you in that sense, linking that to the emotion of love, what does food mean to you? How did you get into cooking and what kind of inspires you when it comes to cooking?
2: This is a really good question with multiple answers. So I'm gonna go piece by piece because I, I, I like uh, I like to answer in an organized form for you. I feel that in life, eating, sexing <laughs> and fighting are the things that kind of activate the same areas of the brain, at least maybe for me, right? Like. I feel like the similar emotions eating that I do boxing and then perhaps like having sex. And I feel like they're the most physical, visceral things. And there's a lot of things going on that are similar. And uh, I think those are also the foundational themes of a lot of my writing. You know, Um, I grew up with a lot of violence in the home and then kind of as a man and a boy, came of age and lots of my rites of passage happened to be physical in nature but then food and sports were something that I was able to see like the rules and values of my parents and home and society like kind of class with each other and then I, I would see things like sharing and teamwork and empathy and thoughtfulness actually help teams win in basketball or help me with boxing or help me with cooking, you know, like balance and being centered and all of these things come into play, philosophy and values come into play, even when I'm like coming up with a dish or working on a recipe. And, and then, of course, I think the most difficult thing that we do in life, but also the most rewarding is our relationships. And a lot of the same principles that I've explored through cooking or um, fighting or sports Physicality, I see the most in in relationships. I think that's always the best test. Like, there's the minor leagues of your emotions and values, and that may be your hobbies, but the major leagues of the playoffs, so to speak. It, it, there, there always seem to be relationships for me.
0: I think we can't talk about cooking and um, your experiences there without mentioning Bauhaus, and mm-hmm. I know, really sadly you guys had to close down in was it october
2: yeah. yeah i'm actually not sad about it i was quite emotional it was interesting like i was very at peace because i feel like if you can get 10 years in this business running a restaurant you're really blessed you know if if, if the game gives you that much time to cook your food and serve your community I, that's i'm just grateful I'm, I'm really, really grateful that people wanted to dine with us for that long. And I held out and, and the business was really good, but it's just the pandemic and then hanging out, you know, with the rent piling up for so many months, it just ended up, I could see on the horizon that the debt would get too high before we opened up. And um, I've also kind of moved on in my life. You know, like I told my story with Bauhaus and after 10 years i closed that chapter and i was really happy but i got sad when i started to see the fans respond and the old customers and how sad they were and i was like man i may have been ready to move on but they weren't and so that that was i think the hardest part of it
0: mm, so any plans to kind of open up another restaurant in the future or do you think now now that that chapter's closed you're going to just go off in different directions
2: you know, I do feel like the chapter on Bauhaus is closed because I I love what we did. I feel like we came into um, the restaurant world. We made people think about a lot of things. I have spoke about restaurants as libraries, and I was like, restaurants are important to me because they're not just places you go eat. They're places that distribute culture. I remember going to Lebanese restaurants for the first time as a kid and being like, oh, wow. Like they... They have different cultural values, but then also a lot of similar values to us and the respect for elders and the way that, you know, they provide service. I was like, wow, there's a lot of similarity between Lebanese and Chinese culture. Um, And then I know like eating Ethiopian food, like it made me more curious about that culture and that country. And I would read about it and research it. And um, I I feel like the way that people dine and the way that people serve you their food tells you so much about them. And you can see the history in the migration of ingredients and how they ended up on a plate. So, um, you know, I felt like I connected more with history and culture through food and dining at restaurants than even like reading it in a history book in school. And I feel like that's that's I feel to me one of the most important functions of restaurants. And I focused on that with Bauhaus. I used that restaurant and a very, very popular dish, the Taiwanese guabao pork bun, to kind of reel people in and tell them about Taiwan and tell them about families like mine that, you know, we fled from China because we lost the civil war and then had to migrate from Taiwan to America and uh, put a face to the name. You know, I, I feel like before Bauhaus opened, people, you would say Taiwan and they'd be like, Thailand, what? Thai what? And, you know, I think Bauhaus really helped educate people about the country that my parents are from. And um, I now do it through writing and film, but food is always a part of it. You know, like even in the new film Boogie, uh, there, the last shoot we had at Bauhaus was for the movie. And who knew, you know, we thought maybe we'd go another 10 years, but that shoot for a Boogie was the last shoot ever at Bauhaus, so it's in there and it lives on, but uh, I would love to open a really small, like neighborhood, old school Chinese restaurant serving Shanghainese, Sandong, Taiwanese, Hunan classics. Like in Taiwan, because so many of us migrated from different provinces of China, the neighborhood restaurants in Taiwan, you'll have Shanghainese dishes, Sandong dishes, Hunan dishes, but then with a Taiwanese kind of flair or presentation to it. And that's the type of restaurant that I would want to open in New York or LA neighborhood, 50 seats, you know, you know, your customers, they know you. I loved Rayo's like the, the restaurant in Harlem, the old Italian restaurant, people buy the tables in there. So everyone's a regular and it's really nice. So if, if I'm able to do something like that in my old age, I, I'd love to.
1: If you had to choose, what would you say your favorite thing to cook is?
2: The you know it's it's different. There's there, there's the ones that everybody wants me to make, and then but I probably the thing pro- I probably enjoy making the most is um, Southern American barbecue. I I really make some of the best ribs you will ever have. Like I've gone up against like barbecue legends, and they're like, dude, how? do you do this and i was like i'm I'm from florida like i i studied southern restaurants and i got a smoker in my backyard and i just practiced and even when i moved to new york i I lived on 12th street and third avenue and i got a bullet smoker and i would smoke things on my balcony and people would walk by like the fuck are you smoking and um it was funny people downstairs would always shout for me to lift up the smoker and show them what i was smoking but um i think the process of barbecue and and, and smoking proteins, uh, it feels very like caveman and like original human stuff. You're playing with fire. And I love things that take a lot of time. Like if I'm gonna barbecue, I go shopping the night before, marinate, season all of it, wake up at 6 a.m., smoke it for a long time. Wait for my friends to come around four or five o'clock, and it's the best. It's it's really meditative for me.
0: I just I love talking about food in general. And uh, one question that <laughs> I actually I love asking, uh, we haven't I haven't asked this to a guest, but I quite often ask it to like new people I meet. And if I ever went on dates, I'd probably ask uh-huh. it on a date. <laughs> but like, if you, you ever had,
2: went on a date, <laughs> ever,
0: like maybe it will happen. Um, <laughs> if you had to only eat one cuisine like for the rest of your life, what would you choose? What would you have to choose?
2: You know, my favorite cuisine for sure is Chinese, but if it's a cuisine and I have to eat it every single day, I'm actually going to go with Korean food because Japanese food to me is a little too minimal, The the flavor it's, 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 it's very minimalistic and, um, it has, I feel, fewer layers than, say, Chinese or Indian food, which there's tons of spices and so many layers. So Mexican, Chinese, Indian food, Persian food have so many things going on in every dish. They're, they're really, really complex and layered. Um, those are some of my favorite cuisines, but you can only eat it so many times. Like, I eat Chinese food or, or Mexican food, Persian food. The next morning, I'm just on my toilet like, oh, my God. Like... <laughs> You know, I'm eating Prilosec before, and then I'm, you know, just with my wet wipes after. It's very, it's, 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 it's a thing. But Korean food is like, you get all of the joy of Chinese food, but toned down just a little bit. Like if Chinese red cooked pork or red cooked beef has 17 ingredients, Korean will maybe have eight or nine ingredients. And it's a little more straightforward. And I feel like my body's more receptive there's also like a lot of probiotics from the fermented foods, and it's good for paleo. Um, I I really, yeah, I would pick Korean food. That would be the one.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I actually think I'd um I'd probably go more yeah like Cantonese, but that that is because I did like I'm I'm from Hong Kong. Like yeah, I, I was born here. So the only thing I constantly crave, like if I'm hungover if I've just done like loads of exercise or like a hike, all I want is like yum cha. Like I just want to go out and have like big plates and then like loads of dim sum. That's all I ever want.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) in in Chinese culture, Cantonese is considered the highest cuisine. You know, the most elegant, the most exquisite. You guys, you know, had the most money of all of the provinces. They're a port city. And so you have the best seafood, the, the best ingredients. And then it's funny on the other end, I think it's just as difficult and just as exquisite Sichuan food, but they have cheap ingredients like river fish, freshwater things, and and pork and and stuff like that. So those those are the two cuisines that are the most complicated and most difficult to pull off, I feel. But yeah, Cantonese is delicious. I, I could eat Cantonese food quite a quite a yeah. bit. And then when you when you get the British kind of localized British. Cantonese food that's also in the canon, that's kind of nice, like your breakfast cafe stuff, you know, like a pineapple bun with butter and a coffee, like that counts as Cantonese food now. So that's oh, like yeah. kind of, that's there's a lot of diversity to it.
0: Yeah, like a pineapple bun and then like a proper Hong Kong style milk tea.
2: <laughs> mm, yes, yes, pork chop bun, but those are all really nice.
1: Beyond your interest in food and your love of food, um, writing is kind of the other big thing that you're really known for. What inspires you to write?
2: <sighs> you know, it was funny. It happened, I was in ninth grade and, oh no, I was in eighth grade and I took like the PSAT, uh, you know, when all the kids got to take the PSAT in school and I ended up testing quite high into like the 0.25% of the nation, very, a very Asian thing, you know? And we got a letter and I got invited to join this program called the Talent Identification Program, where kids could go take college courses when they were like 14. And uh, we looked at it and my math was like off the charts. I have a very, very high math score, but my verbal was still good, but not as high. And when we were going through, my mom and I were going through the syllabus, there was this course called Writing with Aristotle we didn't know who Aristotle was, but my mom's like, it says writing and your verbal's low. You should probably take that course. And I was like, that makes sense. Like supplement something that I'm not good at. And this class changed my life. Um, We started reading. I remember the most most eye-opening thing was they had us read Jonathan Swift, The Modest Proposal. And when we read Jonathan Swift, Modest Proposal, and I learned what satire was, I was like, yo, this is hilarious. But also writing is really a weapon. When you cannot get people to agree with you or you cannot get people to see how unfair life is and what they're doing to your people or your community is, humor and your wit can really turn it around. And um, that that really fundamentally changed my life. And, um, They also did something. They had us read Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream and Martin Luther King, Letter from Birmingham Jail to explain to us the difference between persuasive propaganda type writing, which is I Have a Dream and analytical writing like Letter from Birmingham Jail. And when you see the analytical logical turns that Martin Luther King makes in Letter from Birmingham Jail making a case for himself and humanity, it's, it's unbelievable. And so when I saw those writers, I just said, wow, like, I wanna do that. I, I would love to be able to change people's perspective, help them see the truth that I see in the world through writing. And there was an assignment at the end of the class to write a analytical, persuasive 3.5 essay and my first essay I ever wrote was about the double standard in censoring hip-hop music in America because this was 1996 uh 1997 at the time and like C. Dolores Tucker was trying to ban hip-hop they were trying to censor it but everyone was attacking hip-hop because it was a black art form and no one would talk about punk rock or no effects or nirvana and and there were equally explicit lyrics in their music, and, and I liked their music too. I I wrote an essay about the double standard in how we censor art and language, and I was I was 14 years old, you know um, that that's how I started writing.
0: In your in your book, Fresh Off the Boat, you um obviously it goes through a lot of your childhood and like young adult teenage years. Do you think that your childhood and your upbringing has that? Has that made like a? Uh, has that really impacted the way that you experience your emotions, or how you deal with or handle your emotions? Um, and particularly if we maybe look through the lens of sadness.
2: Yeah, I think it's inevitable that your childhood influences like how you deal with things like sadness. I mean, you only have the tools that you learn at home, right? Um, I learned at a very, so my mother had me when she was somewhere between 21 and 22, you know, like, you know, she was like older 21 or early 22. That's when she had me and she had me in college. And um, my dad, I believe was like 27 years old or 26 years old. And my mom had just immigrated to America. She'd been in America about three years when she had me and didn't really speak great English. So she was, still figuring out this country, an extremely young mom still in college. And there's photos of me like running around the college campus with her. And there's a photo where I'm in a hot tub and her friends are in there holding me above the hot tub. Like I was the party kid, you know, like she'd bring me to parties and people pass me around. And um, so I I knew how to party and I was around, I remember one time my parents were at a party with their friend and my, my dad had to bring me and he was worried I'd like run away or get lost. So he gave me a job and he, he I saw him take a watermelon and put a needle in the watermelon and spike it. I didn't know what he was doing, but he, now I know he was spiking with vodka. And he said, all right, put your hand over the hole in this watermelon and go float in the pool. And I floated in the pool for at least two hours with that watermelon. And he's like, all right, you can come out of the pool now. But you know, these are the tools my parents gave me. These are the things I'm around. So when it comes to sadness and I, I feel a lot of my psychological development, um, the most important realization I came to as a kid was that I was going to have to develop them because my parents are wonderful. I love them. Um, I wouldn't trade them for anyone, but they really didn't know how to be parents and they really didn't know how to be um, partners to each other. There's a lot of violence in my home. And I think around five or six, I just said to myself, I don't think my parents know what they're doing. They're my homies and I'm gonna have to figure stuff out. And I just watched a lot of news. I read a lot of books. I listened to old people as much as I could because I knew my parents were overwhelmed. I could see it from a young age. They were really, really overwhelmed.
1: It'd be interesting to talk about masculinity as a concept because that's something that we've spoken to a lot of our male guests about in the past and looking at how that influences the way in which they're allowed or they have felt they're allowed to interpret their emotions as they've grown up especially when it comes to things like sadness or anger. How has masculinity or these kind of traditional stereotypes of what men should or like people think men should be how has that influenced the way in which you've been able to grow and experience the world
2: yeah masculinity is tough and i think it's especially tough for asian american men um because you know in america we're smaller um we don't seem to be as strong we're a little bit more passive and and people just assume like you see all these attacks on asian americans like people just feel like they can pick on us you know, that, that's just something I've always seen. People are like, oh, you could pick on that little Asian guy. Um, and at home, too, we're taught to be very, very humble and respect our elders, respect our neighbors, keep your side of the street clean. Um, anytime I did something wrong, I would have to kneel at home for a very long time. I got hit a lot. And I was taught and I was trained, like, your dad is the boss whatever he says goes. And when you try to rise up against him, he will physically hurt you. And so I had to learn to respect my father's power. And I think that really strips you of a bit of your masculinity as a child, but then in a way it gives you strength as well. I won't say this for everyone, but for me, I found strength in being able to take it. And I found strength in being able to kneel for hours as long as he said. And I was like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And then it was funny because it gave me very conflicting advice, which is I can discipline you at home. But when you go outside in the outside world, anybody picks on you, you better win that fight. Because if you don't win that fight, you're going to come home and I'm going to discipline you again. And you're going to get beat up twice. <laughs> like, man, this, this is a lot. But I took it on. And when I look back at it, I don't think I would put my kid through the same thing if I had a kid, it was a lot. And I think that everything my father did for me to help make me a quote unquote man in his eyes got me to a point in life. But then once I got to that point, to get beyond that point, I had to unlearn everything he taught me and then kind of like find balance. Because you get, you know, strength and anger and toughness only gets you so far. And you get to a point where you're like, all right, it got me here. But, you know, I hurt people along the way. I hurt myself along the way. I ruined relationships along the way. And um, it was around high school, I started to see the really bad effects of violence. And I tried to undo it and um it was uh watching google hunting helped me a lot that movie came out in 97 i watched it at my aunt's house and that movie changed my life because to that point i I didn't know you could talk about being hit at home when police came to my house i lied to them and said my parents didn't hit me um even though at school they'd have me like take my shirt off and check my stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I always cover for my parents, my brothers cover for them. We always lied. And when I saw Goodwill Hunting, I realized, you know, I may, I don't have to talk to the police, but I can talk to somebody about it. So, you know, I would like make my counselor at school promise me not to say anything and then talk to her about it. Or I talk to my friends about it. And I told myself that, one day i would make a movie showing what i went through and hopefully some other kid can watch it and feel it's okay to talk about these things as well and you know that that's why i made boogie you know like in boogie you see a lot of the violence a lot of the discipline um it's not nearly as bad as it was in my real life but i don't think it needs to be i didn't want to sensationalize it and make it too much about like, oh shit, like that's how he got beat up. So, you know, the kid gets hit, it's clear he's very sad and, and then the story goes on. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question again, but that is, that is kind of how I dealt with masculinity. And I started to find strength in revealing. It's okay to reveal how you feel. It's okay to talk about it. Oh, this is where I'll go um i moved into the neighborhood and the first night i was there i just saw a lot of screaming and yelling at his house and i saw like a dark figure like hitting a kid in the living room and i saw shadows and i was like oh he's getting beat up too and i just walked over one day and like threw mulch at his window and i was like hey you okay (laughs) you know and then he would do the same thing to me when he would hear it at my house and we both just started sneaking out at night after we'd get beat up and like go talk to each other. And um, that really helped me a lot. That, that friendship fundamentally changed my life. And it was, it was funny because I was like the short, stocky Asian kid into hip hop. Like I was a super weirdo. And he was the most popular kid at school. Like he liked Wu-Tang and he liked rap music too because he could relate to all of the pain in it you know, and, and um, we had a lot of similar hobbies and he became my best friend. and, And it was, it was funny because I was his best friend and he was the coolest kid in school. Then everybody liked me too. And it just, it was interesting to me. I'm like, wait, you don't actually have to be tough or, or mean to be cool. Like you can actually just be like empathetic and thoughtful and care about someone and, have a great relationship and be cool. And we, we, we stuck together. I still talk to him. Uh, I probably talk to him twice a year, um, but I talked to him in December and and he's doing great, you know, but we really dug each other out of a very, very deep, emotional hole in high school. And um, I I think we both saved each other's lives.
0: I was just going to say, going, going through all that pain, like through your childhood, like actual physical pain, how, how is your relationship with your parents now like i know I know that your um your mum is in is in your movie boogie like mm-hmm. how I'd just be interested to know because that's, that's like it's such a difficult situation how How are you managing that relationship now
2: um it's you know it's, it's been difficult for a while, but I love my parents and it's not like I'm covering for them i I, I openly talk about everything they've done and I talk to them about it and <laughs> It's going back to Taiwan and meeting other people my age and talking to them about the way they grew up. Um, I understand my father a lot more and I empathize with him, to be honest. I'm not mad at him, I empathize with him because you know, he, he was the youngest of six of a family that basically is refugees fleeing from China to Taiwan And then grew up his entire life under martial law and joined street gangs. This was how my father was raised. So he didn't know anything else. But the thing that my father did that a lot of other Taiwanese dads didn't do, he told me he loved me. And when I got really into drugs in high school, he started to notice I really didn't care about like being alive and that I was really spiraling. And I was just, I was in trouble all the time. I was just getting arrested, doing crazy shit. He took me on a canoe one day and, and was just like, I love you. Like, I know I've put you through a lot. I know, like, it's been tough, but, like, you got to hang on. Like, hang on. And, like, I love you and I'm here. And he stopped hitting me. And he stopped he stopped being so hard on me. And, uh, I've made a choice to not be mad at my dad. I, I just have. And, and, I don't think anyone's gonna convince me to be mad at him. I, I really understand where he came from, the culture he came from and just the political climate. Like when I went to Taiwan, people are not as free to express themselves because of social stigma. You know, everyone is very expected to kind of like have a consensus and it's almost embarrassing to have a different opinion. And everybody gossips and it's like, oh, you do one wrong thing. Everyone's going to gossip and alienate you. Oh, you're the worst. And Asian society is very difficult to grow up in. So I've chosen to have a lot of empathy with my parents and I've chosen to love them and I've chosen to forgive. And I think they've chosen to forgive me because I'm not perfect either. And it's when you understand where people are coming from, it's hard to hate them. And I do know at the end of the day, like without a doubt, my parents love me. Um, they didn't have the tools. They they didn't they didn't understand a lot of these things. Uh, I didn't understand a lot of the way my emotions work until I started, you know, doing therapy or ending up. I mean, lucky enough, I got arrested and they sent me to like counseling, you know, and I know everybody was like, oh, I hate going to counseling. I was like, dude, I need this. This is amazing. You know, I, I love going to like my counseling classes because I couldn't, I didn't have money to go to a therapist, but you go to jail, you get to talk to a counselor.
1: When it comes to anger, just to focus on that emotion a bit more, one of the most kind of challenging things that a lot of our guests have kind of mentioned is being angry with yourself and how that can kind of be one of the most all-consuming forms of anger. Is that something that you've experienced? And is that something that you've learned as you've gotten older to deal with more
2: and to kind of be kinder to yourself? Mine's not as much an anger about myself. I think a lot of my anger comes from being misunderstood and it comes from this fear a very deep fear of like dying alone not like without a wife like that's not what I mean by alone but alone in my head and alone in my thoughts and alone in this way where I'm like does anyone really understand me or am I just funny to them you know I do get quite angry like being censored or you know just even like let's say making a film right and you do things and when people aren't familiar with your culture or they're not familiar with the culture you're working in for instance you know boogie is this combination of very traditional Taiwanese Chinese immigrant culture as well as black culture and downtown New York culture and these are worlds and these are cultures I've navigated for quite some time but when you talk to producers or you talk to the studio they they may not understand it and they may not even know that the things they say feels like they're dehumanizing you in a way or they're disapproving of you or they're disapproving of the culture that you subscribe to and that that stuff really hurts because it's like wait you guys don't have this pressure of like your culture being censored you you get to have you get to have Requiem for a Dream you get to have you know all these films about white people behaving badly but we want to have a film with Asian and black people behaving badly and it's going to be censored I have to explain every single thing and where it comes from because us behaving badly looks like savages to you and I think those things make me really angry just being othered you know like living an entire life being the other will make you angry and then going back to Taiwan and realizing I'm completely even more othered here and just that you have this existence where you will always be the other. Um, That made me really angry for a long time, but then I came to terms and I was like, look, there are a lot of benefits to being the other and you love it. I love it. I, I love it being different and I wouldn't change it for the world. And now I've just accepted that everything has a good and bad, like a yin and yang, and that this is my burden to explain my thoughts and to explain my difference. And that if I don't get angry, and I take on that responsibility, it'll be better. And I'm not as much like I get mad about white explaining, like, look, white people are going to catch up and white people catch up. I can be mad about it forever. Or I can just do the work I need to do and try to make the world a better place. And, and I, that's what I've been trying to do.
0: One thing we we uh, like to get our guests to do, we'd love to know the kind of the little things that happen throughout your day or throughout your life. We call them like happiness bubbles. They don't have to be the biggest thing. They can literally be like eating some good food. What are kind of your little bubbles that give you happiness like throughout your
2: life? My happiness really comes from, I have like probably 10 really, really good friends that I really care about. And when they do something that shows me they pay attention or they notice that means a lot you know and it's not about money or whatever but they just they notice or they see something and they're like oh you would love this thing or like oh my god you're doing that thing again like i have a couple friends that because i sit down in a car and the first thing i do in a car i pull down the back of my shirt then i pull the front of my shirt then i pull my shorts and i pull my underwear and i adjust and I have a couple friends that notice it and when they get in a car with me now, they imitate me and they do it and that cracks me up. But it's just that like people love you enough to pay attention. Understanding myself makes me happy. Like even boxing, when I figure out how to throw a good punch and defend myself and make my body move in an efficient uh, manner, that makes me happy. You know, like I make a good dish. It's like, oh, you understood this ingredient. I think for me, it's just it really comes from understanding Mutual understanding, me understanding this plant or this animal ingredient I'm working with, understanding this craft of boxing or writing, and then friends and other people noticing things about me and people appreciating the things I write or the things I cook. That's really it, it's quite simple for me. And then when it's solitude, I do really enjoy sitting alone. I love hiking. I like going for runs and I do enjoy just blankly staring out my window and being like, wow, I made it to LA. The sky is so nice. I have a house. This is crazy.
1: What makes you hopeful? And obviously this has been a pretty rough year for most people. Is there anything that you kind of think, you know, like something that you can see happening in the future that really not just inspires you, but maybe keeps you going in the fact that you think these kind of visions might come to
2: be? Oh, I will tell you, I'm very hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful. Actually, people gave me a lot of hope this year. You know, the protests gave me a lot of hope. The people examining themselves gave me a lot of hope. People willing to question whether America was as great as we all said and thought it was gives me a ton of hope. Self-reflection and awareness are the most important things. And I think the more self-aware and reflective we are, the better we are to each other, the better we are to this earth, you know? And um, I am hopeful that things are changing and that we're looking at our actions and we're looking at our behavior. Um, I, I think that you can look at American history of the last few hundred years and be like America was a very irresponsible superpower and finally, it's being forced to look in itself. And that gives me hope.
0: One last question, I think, before we wrap up. Um, what are you cooking? Are you cooking anything for Lunar New Year?
2: Oh yeah, we are. I am cooking. And, and also the star of the movie Taylor Takahashi, he's one of my best friends. We cook every week together. And I'm making a Taiwanese turkey rice. So we braise an entire turkey breast in a stock then peel it, then make a shallot rice, serve it with a little taquan. It's really nice. Um, we're also doing a, uh, a Chinese kind of technique on Korean kalbi jim because my mom's from Sandong, which is north of China and it's the closest province to Korea. So there's a lot of similar techniques and ingredients, but I love to make these braised oxtails and short ribs. So we're doing that. I'm doing a whole fish. I'm going to do a sour cabbage, steamed whole fish. And then um, some stir-fried tong hao tai, which is like, I think they call it chrysanthemum vegetable. We got some uh, bubble tea popsicles to finish it. (laughs) I love the bubble tea popsicles. They're quite
0: good. I've never heard of them. They sound amazing. Oh,
2: my God. You have to treat yourself. Go to the grocery store. They got them in Hong Kong. Really, section, bubble tea popsicle oh yeah you gotta get it really I'm gonna, good
0: i'm gonna have to uh, head out to park and shop later
2: yeah <laughs> I, in london they'll probably have it at chinese grocery store in london too you guys got a lot of chinese
1: i will investigate <laughs> i will track them down yeah. <laughs> eddie thank you so much for chatting to us it's been such a great conversation
2: yeah.
0: we really appreciate it was a lot it. of fun yeah. thank you for you taking the
2: time, time it's great oh, thank you
0: that, yeah, that thank means you, a lot guys. Thanks for listening to getting personal if you're enjoying our emotional conversations then please give us a like subscribe and don't forget to leave a review it gives us a boost in the charts which helps other listeners to find us and most importantly it's one of our happy little bubbles when we read what you've written so leave us some stars